Welcome to episode number 40 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In this episode, we're talking about how to run an effective dust explosion training session. We have back on the podcast for its third time, Dr. Chris Bloor, who you just heard two episodes ago, talking about the New Zealand Code of Practice. Dr. Bloor, I appreciate you continuing to share your time and your education on this podcast and informing our viewers with your your knowledge in the area of combustible dust. So in this topic, we're going to talk about how to run an effective dust explosion training session. And this really spawned out of some conversations that I had with Dr. Bloor back on episode 31 of the podcast, which is around food hygiene and explosion safety. But he mentioned that he's, he spent many decades now, or a couple of decades now, doing a lot of training around combustible dust safety. And we talked about some difficulties in different audience groups where they may come into the conversation and and what awareness and education levels they may have at that level for the hazards of combustible dust, and then how to kind of tailor that to them. So I want to get him on today to, to talk through what are the basic elements that we need in an effective dust explosion training program, and also how can we tailor that to to these different specific audiences. And we'll get into, into all of that in this episode. Just in a place to get started, can you go through some of your background with providing training in dust explosion and and how that came about? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, basically, I got interested in explosions um, back in the very late 80s when uh, we had a fairly catastrophic explosion in the New Zealand dairy industry. And I ended up on a, a working party that helped develop the New Zealand Code of Practice and then later the Joint Australian New Zealand Standard. So... Um, when I was working in Melbourne in '99 and part of 2000, there was a clear requirement for further dust explosion training in the, in the Australian dairy industry. And the Dairy Process Engineering Centre that was uh, in um, operation at that time bought the ICME, that's the British Institution of Chemical Engineers, training course on dust hazards. It's a half-day course. It was 35-millimetre slides in those days and some workbooks, and it was state-of-the-art back in 99. Uh, That's 20 years ago now, so (laughs) the art's moved on. Much of that was aimed at generic uh, industry, so we tailored tailored it specifically to the dairy industry. We introduced a lot of dairy case studies. We replaced most of the photographs with with more relevant photographs, Uh, but the general structure of the course was, was very sound. I came back to New Zealand in mid-2000 and was in demand for running training courses within the dairy industry. So the course was further adapted, turned into booklets, uh, PowerPoint, uh, video clips, all of the more modern um, educational aids. So eventually the course was adopted by the New Zealand Qualifications Authority, which is a government body that validates training courses and gives them official government recognition. And uh, the course became uh, 16311, um, a unit standard within the New Zealand Qualifications Authority um, standard system. So um, that was then adapted to apply to different countries. We changed the spelling and the pronunciation for different countries, and in a few cases the language. Uh, We changed the references from European ATEX codes to the US uh, NFPA codes, and changed various things to to make it appropriate for dairy processes in different countries. So I've done over 140 of these half-day training courses over the years, and I'm just about getting the hang of it. 
the primary audience was always uh, spray dryer operators uh, and associated workers. So that they were the initial initial target. Since then, of course, I've worked with instant coffee, coffee creamer manufacturers, and a number of other industries that spray dry combustible products. So the scope of it has gradually broadened as as time's gone by. So I just want to get the number again. So the unit standard was that one Z three one 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 six three one one. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's that's a good background. One hundred and forty times half days so you you've spent 80 days of your uh sorry 70 days of your life providing training on combustible dust <laughs> so that's quite a bit that's a really good background i guess what are the what are the basic things or well, not even the basics if you're putting together a half day course on combustible dust training i should preface this actually this is a little bit greedy on my own in my own right because we get reached out quite a bit for doing training on combustible dust and then we have a lot of individuals that that reach out to us to use material from dust safety science in their training of others. So the reason that I want to put this interview together was I know your background is pretty immense in this area. And I really want to have somebody to point them to to say this is the type of material you should have in your training. This type of material has been effective at getting across to different audience groups. So with that in mind, what what should be included in this type of training when it's being developed? Well, we usually start with the the fire triangle and the um, deflagration pentagon. That is, you need a a fuel, an oxidizer, typically air and heat to to get fire going. And that if the fuel is a finely dispersed dust or powder, then dispersion becomes important, followed by confinement, which is the fifth um, side of the pentagon. If, if it's not confined, you just get a big impressive fireball, which I use for demonstration purposes and generally um, gets people excited. So without confinement, it, it's not such a hazard. If it's in a confined space, obviously it will attempt to escape its confinement and it will break things in its attempt. That's where you get serious issues with uh, damage to equipment and uh, harm to people. The fact is, though, that if you've got a dust cloud in your plant, by design, in other words, if, if the creation of a combustible dust cloud is actually a feature of the equipment and you can't walk away from it, you've got confinement, uh, you've got dispersion, you've got fuel, and you've got an oxidant. So it's only the ignition source that's missing. You're only one one step away from disaster, and that step is lack of ignition. So a very significant part of the course is going to be ignition sources. What are they? Which ones are important? Which ones are less important in each context? For many food products, one of the problems is that if you fail to ignite it through negligence or stupidity or bad design, it can still provide self-ignition and set itself off despite your efforts to try and stop it. So uh, self-ignition is a particular hazard in some industries and it's irrelevant in others. For example, in the sugar industry, self-ignition is not, a, not an issue. So if you're making um, or grinding or milling sugar, you're looking at external ignition sources as being the ones to worry you. In spray drying milk powders, for example, self-ignition is an issue for most of them because you have a, a, a source of sugar, which is lactose in milk. You have a source of proteins, which are the milk proteins, and together they react using the Maillard-Browning reaction, which generates heat and will, uh, in a thick enough layer of powder in a warm enough place, 
cause it to cook up and self-ignite. When you have self-ignition, you need to be able to detect it if possible, and that's where carbon monoxide monitoring comes in. So we take the, the fact that we've got a combustible dust, we take the fact that it is often dispersed by design as opposed to by accident, we then look at the ignition as the key, and then we look at external ignition sources, uh, maintenance activities, uh, hot work, permitting systems, all of the things associated with um, then we might look at bearings and conveyors and uh, bearing temperatures, recording equipment to check that, and then we look at carbon monoxide to pick up the self-ignition. And so we, we, t we sort of go down the, the, the track of uh, minimising the ignition sources. So that's uh, also coupled with the in analysis of the particular products that you're making. So some products are very sticky and will likely coat up the equipment and create layers that could later on combust. Others are very free-flowing and don't cause a problem. So we're looking very much at the dust characteristics. Some material like cornstarch, for example, is extremely hazardous because it, it, it has a very high KST value. It explodes very quickly and creates a lot of pressure in a very short time. Uh, other products burn quite slowly. Coffee cream is a good example where it burns relatively slowly. So the pressure rise is quite slow. Uh, you still don't want to be there when it happens, though. <laughs> then we look at, okay, we've done our best to prevent it. What, what happens if the worst happens? And the answers there are things like uh, venting, suppression, isolation. Other, other approaches might be to reduce the inventory of the dust um, to minimise the amount that's likely to go bang, but in large-scale factory production, that's often not, not a practical cause of, of action. Now, all of that uh, is relevant to the food industry where we are generally creating deliberately with malice aforethought, deliberately creating a combustible dust cloud. It's part of the process. For many industries, though, the dust cloud is an accident. It's fugitive dust. It's from conveying or milling or transporting um, by pneumatic or uh, conveyors or uh, various types of devices. So we're looking at attrition from a product such as grain, which is normally not explosible, but the dust that goes with it most certainly is. And so here, the issue is not one necessarily of self-ignition, but it is an issue of dust control. And if you can move the product from point A to point B without creating dust, using something like, for example, the Olds elevator, which doesn't create any dust at all and can raise grain vertically, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of feet without a problem, then uh, we would prefer to do that. If you're going to be loading grain off a conveyor belt into a stockpile, there are devices you can pour it through which will prevent the entrainment of dust. So you get zero dust when you're putting thousands of tonnes of grain on a stockpile. So there are ways of avoiding the, the dust in the first place. So there we've got the luxury of avoiding the combustible dust cloud. So we get an extra layer of safety. And, of course, we also have our normal ignition controls. So the, the audience for the uh, course will dictate to some extent the emphasis. But those are the main points that we look at in running a course on the hazards of combustible dusts. 
So thanks, Chris, for going through those kind of the basic requirements, I guess, of a dust explosion training course. By way of summary, we, we mentioned that, you know, you, you start with the requirements, which are the requirements of a dust explosion, rather, which the fire triangle and the explosion pentagon. And there's really two cases. There's the case where the fuel is inherently, I think you, you call it, you know, it's combustible dust by design. This is a case where the product that you're handling is a combustible dust, flour, sugar, and when you have it inside a machinery, you have all the elements. If you're handling wood and have it in a sifting machine, then you have you have dust, you have confinement, you have dispersion, and you're really only missing the ignition. So in that case where, where the combustible dust is the, the material that you're handling, there's a lot of work around source, ignition source control. There's a lot of work around prevention. And a part of it is ignition source control. That could be external ignition sources, so things like sparks and hot screws and... and um, different things like that. It could also be smoldering in the material. And we covered this a bit in the previous podcast episode, but it's it's actually a really important area as well, um, especially in spray dryers, which I know is your expertise, um, but in other other areas uh, as well that we covered in the podcast before. Addition to that, you get into protection. So in case something happens, actually probably a better way to say it is when something happens, when a cloud gets ignited, you need to protect against it. So that's that's mitigating the effects through things like venting, isolating your your machinery um, and the different kind of basic concepts there that's one branch another branch you have dust that's not meant to be combustible or the product's not a combustible dust but through attrition you can get it wearing down and building up and accumulating and under those conditions you're you're normally looking at housekeeping you're probably looking at housekeeping in both cases but that's the case where you see a lot of housekeeping issues arising as that dust gets broken down so those are the, the kind of basic elements of a maybe a half-day training course on dust explosions. What are the the different audiences that you've come across in your training in this area or you're providing of training that are normally looking for this type of training? Yeah, that's a good question because, as I um, mentioned earlier, the, the course has adapted itself over the years. Uh, it started out as spray-dryer operators. Typically, a couple of people will run a evaporator spray dryer combination, maybe two or three spray dryers from a control room, and um, they have a tendency to believe what's on their computer screens, which um, is heavily mediated by a lot of instrumentation and design assumptions and so forth, and uh, that they do need to get out in the field and, and actually listen to the machinery and, and, and look and, and smell so that's where it started. Uh, then, of course, we had a number of people who are associated with maintenance, with packaging the product, laboratory staff, lab staff who will come in and uh, take samples uh, every hour or so, perhaps. Uh, these are people who, are, for a short part of each working day, potentially expose, exposed to the risk. And they need to be aware. They, they, they are not in a position to do anything about it, but they do need to be aware that there are hazards and if they spot anything that doesn't look right, they should report it immediately. Then we look at uh, the sort of people that are involved in the um, plants where their material handling, where the dust is uh, really the side effect of the process and is not, not the main uh, feature. And these people are often not as alert to the hazard as they might be. Uh, some examples would be things like medium-density fibreboard plants where typically one whole side of the factory will be hinged to, to open. And they get incidents two or three times a week where they get basically a, 
a flash fire. It, it, it would be a deflagration if the walls didn't open rather promptly. Um, so here we've got people who work in and around an area where dust may be present and the housekeeping, as you say, is is really a, a key there. But there may well be issues involved in the unnecessary creation of dust in the first place. And uh, we can often address that in a training course and they can reduce the amount of housekeeping needed by reducing the amount of fugitive dust. Another issue with this is often static electricity. If you uh, watch a, a YouTube clip of an incident um, involving an explosion, there's probably 80% of the time the local fire chief will say, oh, static electricity was suspected. It's often suspected. It's sometimes guilty. Um, certainly in the food industry, static is really not much of a hazard because the minimum ignition energy for most of the food products is very high. So we do use static strapping and bonding um, as a matter of good practice, but you're not going to get blown to bits by a, uh, a static spark. Uh, whereas if you're handling um, uh, plastic pellets in an injection moulding situation, the dust that comes from handling those, you can stroke a cat in the next room and the static will set it off. And there have been horrendous uh, fatal accidents from very, very static-sensitive materials. Mercifully, they are very few and far between in the food industry. So again, we try and tailor the course to the, to the audience. Now, that's for people involved in the factory, people who work there. What about people who go there only when something bad's happened? And I'm talking here about firefighters, first responders who may be called to a, an incident. There's somebody's reported smoke coming out of the factory or somebody's um, dialed the emergency number. And here we've got trained firefighters. Now, firefighters understand the fire triangle really well, and they're fully equipped with all sorts of technology to uh, remove the heat from a fire with, with cold water, for example, remove the air with, say, dry powder fire extinguishers and all manner of technology to fight a fire. We're dealing with the deflagration pentagon, and if the firefighters in their enthusiasm create a dust cloud where there was not one before, they will create an explosion and they may well be in or nearby that uh, fireball as it emerges uh, with the risk of injury uh, and the risk of damage to, to the equipment and the buildings. So with firefighters, I try and differentiate very carefully the uh, response that's appropriate to a fire, of which they are the acknowledged experts, and the response appropriate to a deflagration, which is something they're not generally uh, well trained in in most jurisdictions. There'll be a few exceptions if you've got a lot of um, paper mills and things in a, in a town. The guys there probably do know <laughs> pretty well what to do. But generally, uh, particularly in rural in, uh, areas in the world where milk powder factories are often found, uh, you've got a largely volunteer firefighting force. And uh, they simply don't run into these deflagrations more than once or twice in a lifetime. So training them is really quite important uh, because they can create a hazard 
beyond what was there when they arrived. And I've done quite a lot of training for firefighters directly in their own um, fire stations, but I've also invited them in to sessions within the factories that they may be called upon to protect. And they've always appreciated it. If you get two or three firemen in uh, for a, a half-day course in a factory site, um, that's really helpful because they have then become aware of all the other hazards in a factory. Um, there's tripping hazards, there's chemicals, there's um, uh, lack of visibility due to smoke, etc. And uh, the more they know about the place they may have to visit in a, in a hurry one day, the better. And getting the firefighters' uh, heads around the hazards of deflagrations when they're experts in conflagrations uh, is actually, um, it, it often comes as a little bit of a surprise to them just how dramatically a fire can turn into something so much worse. Uh, hence my insistence on every uh, possible occasion of uh, hanging up the do not disturb notice on a process. Just don't make dust if you don't have to. So those are, those are the, the main original uh, recipients of the training. Now, uh, there's a couple of other or three other um, potential audiences. Um, the, the, the next is probably the equipment manufacturers, the people who make spray dryers or um, powder silos or sifters or cyclones or um, pneumatic conveying equipment or dust collectors. These are people that are in the engineering design world and they are designing equipment which will or may have combustible dust. And the, the difficulty we've got here is uh, that the equipment needs protection, but the equipment's almost always installed inside a building. And in getting the integration of the equipment design with the building design with the building ventilation design is an absolute nightmare. I've been involved in designing over uh, four or five uh, milk powder factories over the years, and um, I've had the luxury of, of personally designing the architecture for two of them. And designing a plant, a building, so that you can snuggle the plant up to an external wall to make venting easy uh, makes life really good, provided you don't have to put a fire escape right past the explosion vent. And uh, I have photos of places where this has happened. So integrating the design of the equipment with the design of the plant with the safety equipment is really, really much better done on paper or a CAD program before you start building than afterwards when you discover that you've got the spray dryer 20 feet from an outside wall and you just can't put a 20-foot duct in. Generally speaking, people have no idea of how bad long vent ducts are. As the vent duct gets longer and longer, the, the pressure in the vessel that's protected gets higher and higher until eventually it becomes totally impractical. So typically uh, two to three metres or um, 10 feet is, is getting close to the limit that you can, you can tolerate sensibly. So I've run a number of courses for all the major um, spray dry manufacturers worldwide uh, over the years on, on the design aspects. They're a really good audience because they are all engineers, they know what they're doing and once they know and understand the nature of the, the issues, they're onto it and uh, the problems tend to uh, diminish from then on. So they'd be the main, uh, the main ones. And then you've got some 
some extra sort of ones off to the side. And this uh, includes uh, people like attorneys that are representing companies that might be having a, an issue with the regulatory authorities and briefing them so they can understand the issues and distinguish what's actually hazardous from what's merely claimed to be hazardous uh, is, is very helpful. And um, I've helped train up a number of people in a number of countries who are now re really quite expert in this area and they can winnow out the, the wheat from the chaff when it comes to citations from the, from the regulator. And uh, I, I suspect in, um, in a, a very modest way I've contributed to the upskilling of some of the regulators as they've been exposed to some of the, uh, the results of my training the attorneys. Um, but this is an area, uh, who trains the, the regulators? This is actually a, a more serious issue in industrial safety worldwide, I suspect, and possibly the topic of another, another podcast. If, if you have professional engineers working for the people making the factories and the quality of the regulators' uh, staff coming around, the industrial hygienists or the assessors that come around and inspect a plant and then issue citations, that's actually, you really do want a well-trained, uh, co professionally competent uh, regulator. Um, I know people say, well, you, well you know, we can... We can um, hide things from them if they don't know too much but that's really a very false false position to take because everybody wants safety and the more competent and well-trained and experienced the regulators are the more likely they are to pick up genuine problems and the more likely they are to dismiss the trivial things that sometimes gets picked up on a, on a walk around which are not materially hazardous whereas they might well walk past something that is hazardous and don't notice it. So it's in everybody's interest to have the regulators well-trained. And how, how, how do you do that? That's, that's a whole other uh, topic, I suspect. Yeah, you, you make the interview portion is quite easy because you, you hit almost every point I was going to ask before I asked it, uh, which is perfect. Two points I want to highlight out of this, and I had a couple other groups that I can mention that, that could require trainings. You hit a lot of them. The firefighters... I don't like the idea that they'd only see, I'm not sure actually if I like the idea or not, that they'd only see one or two deflagrations in their lifetime. That's probably something good to put in the training <laughs> that you're, you're only going to see that you may only see this once or you may only see this twice. And it, it kind of illustrates, but it can be deadly and it has been deadly too. Even this year, we've had a number of firefighters pass away, unfortunately, from, from responding to dust fires that turn into dust explosions. So it's, it's very serious. So that'd be a good thing to highlight. And the comment on the regulators, who trains the regulators is, a, is actually a really good one as well. Another problem you run into is if the, if you get a regulator inspector that gets too well-trained, they're going to get picked up by an outside consulting company and they're not going to be a regulator anymore. So I could, I've seen that happen with a lot of the really experienced folks. Now they're on, you know, in different roles. And that's, that's even an added issue that I hadn't thought of is, yeah, if they get knowledgeable enough, they're probably not going to be an inspector anymore. A couple other groups that I, I've come across, insurance companies are, are one that could probably benefit from dust explosion training. Industry associations. So if you're going and doing a food safety audit, it's probably helpful to know that combustible dust is a potential issue. I was going to mention equipment manufacturers, but you, you brought that up. Um, Arpad Vares back in episode 
a while ago now, episode 20 of the podcast on ATEX certification, he mentioned training equipment manufacturers as a really important part. It's it's fair enough to say that you're Six Sigma in your process, but if it's not actually safe handling combustible dust and it's it's meant to be, then then that can be an issue. So I really I really like those different groups. And, and you you highlight a lot of the for the different groups, what different types of training, how the material needs to be adjusted for those groups. I was wondering if you if you have any more insight on that. So maybe even with some of the other groups that I mentioned, maybe insurance companies or insurance companies or in industry associations, do you see gaps there in their knowledge that, that maybe we could fill with this type of training as well? Yeah, the in, in New Zealand, the uh, dairy industry got together back in the late 80s and uh, were actively involved in the formation of the New Zealand Dairy Code of Practice for the um, spray dry. So there's an example of an industry association getting together with the, the fire service, the insurance council, the New Zealand Dairy Board and our research institute to come up jointly with something that would work for the whole industry. And there's definitely a role there in, in different industries for because industries, say the grain handling, for example, are everywhere in the world, it's pretty much the same technology, the very similar issues, and uh, there's a lot to be gained by by working together. One other, uh, the insurers is an interesting one. We've now got quite a lot of uh, factories in New Zealand that are owned by offshore companies um, such as Chinese and Canadian and they will typically go to either UL or FM. So we get we get people from FM coming in and saying, well, no, you want to sprinkle your building for firefighting? We're not going to give you anything off the insurance premium if you do that. So, you know, it's up to you. So we have some of our buildings that are not sprinkled and some that are. I think it's a good idea to sprinkle them personally. Um, it's not wildly expensive, but you don't get any any benefit from the insurance cost if you do. Then you get people saying, well, no, we, we have to have FM certification on everything that's in the factory that's related to, to the firefighting or the um, explosion protection. Uh, and, and if you're using European equipment, that can be quite tricky um, because the, the, the standards don't match up. So it, it's, it's really quite quite interesting as to how you tackle that but it is significant that the insurance council in new zealand was one of the parties to the original working group that developed our dairy code of practice so it's something that's quite important the other issue i should have mentioned is the the definition of a uh, authority having jurisdiction or the ahj in the nfpa terminology who actually signs off the design or the installation or the work practices it, it's a pretty ill-defined area, I suspect, everywhere. In New Zealand, we have a definition of an IQP, which is an independent qualified person. And it's not always immediately obvious how you become qualified and who's qualified to qualify you, but you, you need to get an IQP to sign off a building warrant of fitness, for example, in New Zealand, to allow it to be occupied um, or a process to take place within it. and the traceability of the responsibility backs up the sort of chain of, of, of um, responsibility uh, is, is quite deeply confused, um, even on a good day. So there's an issue here. If you've got a small town in the Midwest of the US, for example, the local fire marshal's probably the guy that signs off the factory. Now, these are fine folk, but... The technical expertise in, say, um, wood processing or, or 
spray drying powdered milk or um, grain handling may or may not be extensive. Uh, and while they're, they're well qualified in the fire side of things, on the explosion side, not so much. So how do they get the uh, training resources they need to do their job properly? And whose job is it to, to make sure that happens? And how can industry together work with these people to get a, a, a raise the general level of understanding of some of these issues because you don't want egregious uh, safety breaches to be um, not even noticed by someone responsible, but nor do you want lots of niggly little nitpicky things that really don't amount to anything causing anguish and grief uh, because they all have to be involved in paperwork and chasing up and, and getting consultants in to rebut it and all this sort of stuff. So it's getting something that's reasonably good and reasonably manageable is quite important. Um, I've not been involved in, well, I tell a lie, I have, I think, twice briefed our local city and regional council here in New Zealand on issues relating to dust because there was an incident at a flour mill some years ago where dust was involved subsequent to a fire and then they had a bit of an incident. So um, in this case, the, the council employees that were responsible for uh, monitoring the safety of the workplace uh, did actually attend the training session to get a better idea of what was going on along with the fire people. So uh, but this is another area. This is a layer of sort of low-level bureaucracy throughout the world that's responsible for literally signing off the safety of factories and various commercial premises, which is kind of too low level to get intensive training, but um, too high level to really be allowed to sort of general knowledge of the man in the street. So um, that is an area where maybe some training would be would be helpful. But how you how you make that happen and how you organise the funding of that. Uh, even if it's a matter of giving them two hours time off work to attend a course, it still comes out of somebody's budget. So it's making that happen is 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 quite important. So I think with the training, we've really got to, to, to step right back and look, okay, we've got the workers at the coalface, uh, as it were, the metaphorical or actual coalface. Then we've got the equipment designers and we've got the insurers and, and so on. But we've also got this mid-level of people who authorise things to happen. Um, and that kind of left out, I feel. And uh, I think if, if you're looking at a, um, a more global approach to training, that, that's one area where there's definitely a deficit. Yeah, I appreciate you expanding on those because I think those are important groups, um, especially the AHA, AHJ groups. I actually had it written here, um, but I forgot to mention it as, a, as another group. And we've, we've talked about that before. Everything you're saying, we've heard before on the podcast in terms of AHJs, difficulties with training there, qualified persons who is qualified person, who's qualified to qualify a qualified person. Um, those are all challenges that we have openly kind of across the globe. So that's, that's really good to bring up kind of in closing out, I want to get some tips because I know I, I mentioned in episode 31, the podcast that you always have these kind of one line or single idea uh, tips to explain combustible dust hazard. I think, I think the one you shared in the first episode was never close something you can't open quickly and never open something you can't close quickly, which, I've already used a couple of times in, in some presentations I've given. But what do you do when when you're trying to give this training and it's to a group that maybe is a little bit resistant to to move forward, to enact on what they're learning? And what are just some challenges when you when you get into this challenge of, of convincing people of the issues? 
you have any ideas or thoughts on on some good ways to to go above and beyond and actually get them to realize what hazards are that they're working with? Now, that's a really good point. What I do is I have a, a thing which is known, I think, in North America as a beer bong, which is a length of plastic tubing with a funnel on the end of it. Uh, it's a multi-purpose tool. The way I use it is I put a, a, a few spoonfuls of powder into the funnel and then blow from a safe distance uh, that cloud of powder over a, a naked flame from a blowtorch. And you get a, uh, you get a little fireball. Um, it can be... Uh, you know, couple of metres long, six or eight feet long, uh, depending on the product. And what I normally do is I use cornstarch or corn flour, as it's known here, which burns very quickly and you get a, a very sudden puff and a, quite a large fireball and, and some perceptible heat comes from it. And uh, think, oh, oh, that's interesting, and I do that a couple of times. Then I get some of their powder, which might be a milk powder, for example, and then you get a slightly slower explosion but a slightly longer fireball. We did some work with a major coffee creamer manufacturer some years ago, uh, makes a significant percentage of the coffee creamer used in, in the whole of North America. Uh, and the workers there said, oh, but our product wouldn't, wouldn't do that, would it? And I said, well, let's give it a try. So they gave me some. We got about a 20-foot flame off it. It burnt quite long and slow and generated a lot of heat. Uh, some years later, the Mythbusters uh, TV program blew about half a ton of this up with an air cannon and produced a 300-foot diameter fireball, which um, surprised even them. So this is an example of product that the worker said no concept was hazardous uh, beforehand, but it certainly got their attention. Uh, so a live demonstration uh, is really, really good. And uh, it really, they feel the heat, they see the flame, and they realise that if that was in a confined space, which was occupied by them, it would be deeply unpleasant and possibly fatal. So it really does get their attention. I've got video clips of me doing this, but they're nowhere near as effective as the real thing. So that, that would be the single best way of getting people's attention and making them realise that, oh, it's a little dust exposed. Oh, well, you know, how bad can that be? Well, quite bad. <laughs> I would caution anyone that's doing live, live demonstrations as well. Um, you, you, you should understand the hazard of what you're working with. You should probably have some safety gear on. Um, and don't go doing this in a room full of people unless you know what's going to happen. So... Uh, make sure it's a repeatable process. I, I don't want people listening to the podcast and then going um, into their garage and, and lighting their, their place on fire. Exactly. I, I do this outdoors. It's a good point. A, a live demonstration is, is probably the, the only way to connect with some people, the only way to, to demonstrate those hazards. Incidentally, it works really well at night. I did one at the university uh, here in, in Eden a couple of years ago for the food science department after dark. And it's just like fire breathing from the point of view of uh, the, the elimination given. But when it's a food product uh, and it's going uh, woof, it, it's quite impressive. But, of course, safety first. Uh, there's no good hurting people with a safety demonstration. It's kind of not, 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 not a smart thing to do. No, that's really great. It's, well, it's, that's a good point, I think, to emphasize on. And I want to highlight some ways to connect with these groups. Another thing we've talked about before and, we're, we're running low on time, so we won't go into it in too de much detail, but is, is the use of case studies, um, use of incident data. I mean, that's what we're collecting with the incident database. To pick in certain, in all industries, you can actually look and say, okay, in wood pellet or in, in food processing for a specific type of food, in milk powder production. 
Uh, these are the, the type of things that are happening. So those are generally very useful. The U.S. Chemical Safety Board reports, I know you've mentioned previously, are, are tremendously useful in this in this space because um, they give very detailed analysis, very in-depth analysis. So yeah, I think that's probably a good place to close out for this episode of the podcast. Are there any parting words you want to leave the, the listener with um, in regards to dust explosion training? Well, just that it, it's it's important and it needs to be uh, repeated. Typically, every two to three years, I'll go back to a factory and uh, run a, a refresher. Just just to bring it closer to the top of people's consciousness, I think that's helpful. Uh, so uh, that uh, that would definitely be um, something in. And obviously, you can train some of the staff in the factory to to run some of these courses to reduce the cost of the of the refresher training, but. A little bit of knowledge is is very helpful when it comes to safety. Yeah, I'll give two examples because they just came to mind and probably would have been better to bring them up earlier. But I've had safety managers from facilities say that the only way that they got funding for putting safety protection systems in place is through a a local expert coming out and and doing an on-site facility-specific training for them. And that really opened everyone's eyes and allowed them as a safety manager, gave them some ammunition to, to be able to implement some things. Um, that was actually Fornaby Lumber back in episode two of the podcast, all the way back on the second one. Uh, that was our first interview. And Christian Fournier there said that yeah, some training given to him by EPM Consulting here based out of Halifax made them aware of the hazards, but it was the only way that he could actually get that implemented into his facility um, was to have that out and have them explain it to his manager so that he could put that in place. So it's, it is really important. And a lot of the open challenges that we mentioned, like authorities having jurisdiction, training of regulators, training of equipment manufacturers, and training of workers. I mean, that's where, where it all starts the, at the, the coal mine phase. Those are all important topics. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to share your, your knowledge, your, I think we said 70 days or so of, of 70 work days of training people around the world on combustible dust safety um, and for coming on the podcast again for the, the third episode um, and interview. So I look forward to the chance to, to maybe get you on for the fourth interview again in the future as well. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Dr. Chris Bloor, and we've been talking about how to run an effective dust explosion training session. We really covered three areas in this presentation and it's kind of follows what, who, and why. So what should be included in the kind of baseline dust explosion training, who should be included in that training, who should receive the training. Then we talked about how do you how do you deal with, make people realize the hazards. You have some non-believers, you have people that are resistant to change. So what should be included, who should be included, and then how do you actually go about extending that to the next level um, with, with this type of training. So I really appreciate having Dr. Chris Bloor on. As always, if you have any questions, you can leave them in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 40. Dr. Bloor's contact information will be included there in the show notes. And if you are looking for any additional topics to be covered in the podcast, you can go and leave those at dustsafetyscience.com slash ask. We'll bring a subject matter expert on to cover those. As always, I appreciate you listening to the podcast. I hope you have a safe week ahead. And I really look forward to helping continue to spread um, this knowledge and this awareness to different industries handling combustible dust around the world. 